Hi there, this is Justina, and you're listening to the Exploding Head Podcast. Hi, everyone, and welcome to the very first episode of the Exploding Head Podcast. I'm very excited, and today we'll talk about what happened in 2020. It sounds like a very broad topic, and it can be, but I've chosen to focus it on three things, three good things that happened last year. I'll talk about Argentina, I'll talk about what happened in Bolivia, and what was and is still happening in Belarus. And more importantly, what the themes are, what the broader themes are surrounding these topics, and why I think they should give us some hope. And I think we can use some hope for 2021. I mean, the year has started and holy shit, there are things happening already. So I hope you enjoy and let me get to it. So let's start with Argentina, which after years of protests, right? It wasn't just last year, years of protests. They have finally legalized abortion. Well done. Congrats. This is a big deal. It came about on the 30th of December. So if, uh, depending on your time zone, if you're waking up on the 31st and you live a bit further away from Argentina, this could have been like the best, coolest piece of news for you (laughs) at the very end of the year. At least for me, it was. Why it's a big deal? A couple of things. Intrinsically, first of all, it's always a big deal. This is always important. Human rights, women's rights, women's right to control her own body. That's important. It might sound basic, but it's not basic if we don't have it everywhere, right? So it's still very important. Also, Argentina becomes the first major country in South America to have abortion legalized. It's only Uruguay and Cuba that have abortion legal, but no one else really, right? Like no other no other country. And it's not a small continent, South America. That's why, congrats. Another reason why it is important uh, is that every time we see big protests, big social movements, right, demanding certain things, demanding a policy change, and we see governments respond to that, we see governments take action and being responsive, yeah, that's good, this is how democracies should uh, should operate, even if we're not celebrating this fact, because, hey, the bar seems to be quite low, like, is the government responding to its citizens to an extent, and we say, yes, after massive protests, that's still good we should point to it and say, this is an improvement, this is some progress. Lastly, one more point. Naturally and sadly, Argentina is not the only country who's on that path, who's been struggling to to legalize abortion. There are uh, a number of countries that are on the same path. You know, several countries in South America we have. And Poland. Poland, uh, that was a big thing in Poland, right? They had massive, huge protests erupt against their rather conservative and also uh, religious to my mind not a great combination usually and not in terms of women's rights at least uh, you know for any country to have so they've had huge protests and I believe they're continuing this year so oh my goodness if we could see the same change like actual uh, you know new laws being passed in the Polish parliament that would be amazing so hopefully Argentina obviously not only brought some good news for us and we can celebrate in this solidarity because why not? Why not to do that? But also hopefully uh, it will set a wonderful example and it will be this, you know, yet another beacon in the same struggle that women and people are having in different countries as well. 
Now let's move to Bolivia, a different country and a very different topic really. And honestly, I have to tell you, I thought, hey, let me very quickly, you know, in just a couple of minutes, summarize the whole history of Bolivia and the points of that history that I think are very important for the context of what I'm about to say. So, turns out, that's quite difficult. And to avoid what is called scope creep, right? A phenomenon when you're sort of expanding your topic or, you know, you're expanding a concept definition until it gets just so broad and it becomes close to meaningless. But so instead, I go way more deeper into this topic in my article that you can check out at a time convenient for you or not to check out. That's an option as well. So... In 2019, there was a presidential election in which Evo Morales, the then president of Bolivia, ran for re-election. And Evo, he's the first indigenous president of Bolivia, and he's the person who's very much responsible for various social changes in Bolivia. And this is something you can research, you know, I recommend looking into different social um, inequality policies, like what happened to Bolivia recently in terms of unemployment infrastructure, poverty levels, the economy itself, and so on. There's a lot of good that has been done, and of course there are points of critique there as well, in terms of natural resources and how they've been used. So he ran, then the election was very hotly contested by his rivals and by a certain organization called the Organization of American States. Interesting fact here, later on, those accusations of fraud were very highly contested and called to have been politically motivated. Once again, more of that in my article. So then Eva was pressured by the military to leave. And so he chose to leave so that large-scale violence doesn't erupt. Unfortunately, that did happen in the interim government in the very first month, 2019, November. They were basically persecuting indigenous population in Bolivia. And there's an interesting report in that showing what exactly happened. Eva spent most of his exile time in Argentina, and then in 2020, in October, the interim government finally held elections. And the results of that election was the reason why Eva felt safe to come back to Bolivia, because his party, MAS, Movimiento al Socialismo, won. It won by a big margin, and the president also uh, is from that party, the new president. So what is a big deal here is not only or not necessarily the fact that Evo could return to Bolivia, but the fact that we had elections, they were contested, the interim government. Uh, usually in South America, we have parties who otherwise are not able to get into the government and they kind of take over and then, hey, are they trying to undo certain policies that the previous governments have been implementing Maybe they're trying to privatize stuff. Who knows? Another research topic for you <laughs> to do. But so when that is undone, when the people are allowed to vote again and you have another democratic election and the votes matter, <laughs> like in any country, that is a big deal. That is important. But there is more to the story. There is this extremely dark, extremely dark history extremely dark context to where this was happening, right? And so for that context, we have to go some decades back, some centuries we, we might decide to go back as well. So let me give you that context very quickly in really just a minute. 
So the part of the Bolivian history that you might be familiar with is the part of colonialism. I understand this is not when or where a history of a country starts, but it's a very painful one. And in Bolivia, like in, I guess, any other country really that has a colonial past, uh, it came with just a bouquet of things like extraction of natural resources, exploitation of people, uh, weird systems of how land and other resources got distributed. So yeah, colonialism in short. Obviously once a country is not a colony anymore, it doesn't automatically somehow dismantle so easily and profoundly all the mechanisms of oppression and unequal distribution of resources. So like in whole South America, then you have this huge influence of big corporations based in the West somewhere. So Bolivia had a period of that as well. But then, on top of everything, it had another period that was extremely dark and gruesome. And that's the one that I finally, finally reached. And I can talk about it now. Yes. From late 60s slash early 70s, Bolivia was one of the countries that formed a, a network of states under the name of Operation Condor. So basically, those were states that all had already right-wing dictatorships in place and they wanted to maintain the power to suppress the leftist movements, the campesino movements, to basically terrorize various political groups and by terrorizing the whole population, right? Because the very point of terrorism is that anyone can be a victim. That's how it works. The fear sort of spread everywhere. So what Operation Condor really did is facilitated the exchange of intelligence between... Uh, at the beginning, it was six countries and then a couple of more joined in South America. So sharing of intelligence and then actually working together to capture enemies of the state, meaning just people uh, in exile, right? So let's say if you were being persecuted in Chile and you wanted to escape your you know, the state terror and go to Argentina, you wouldn't be safe there, right? Hence, a network large-scale military cooperation, collaboration was happening. So it was really a system, a campaign, and really decades of state terror, tortures, of killings, of disappearances. You can read more about Los Desaparecidos in, in Argentina. In Argentina. Uh, I got there into my Spanish mode. It is a really sad, dark period of the Latin American history. And one important thing to know and to remember, and this is that very important context, is that like in many really military coups and then right-wing dictatorships or right-wing regimes, we find the U.S. involvement in here. Uh, military trainings, military assistance and money and weapons, uh, and then silence when these groups commit human rights violations. Like It's kind of like it's not even that shocking maybe, and these are not the only instances where, especially during the Cold War, the U.S. was supporting kind of like any groups that were not on the left to, you know, to prevent the spread of communism, uh, which in Latin American case was, yeah, any movement that was a little bit on the left and uh, or more on the left who threatened uh, the very doctrine that the U.S. had and kind of still has, I guess, um, in the way uh, in, in the Western Hemisphere. So Bolivia, like other countries in the region, uh, had its fair share, I'm not sure if that's fair to say, of military dictatorships in the past supported by the West, by the states, really. And so this was a very, very long point I wanted to make, but I wanted to take the time to actually give that weight 
to this context because it's so, so, so important. So basically what I could have said like eight minutes ago was that in South America or in Latin America, when you have elections <laughs> and people get to vote and they vote for a party that is not on the right, but it's in the center, maybe center left. And in Bolivia's case, that was after the original election, right? So they had an election, they voted for Evo, and, you know, and, you know, that was very much opposed by certain right-wing groups um, and celebrated by the states also. So when a country gets actually to have its elections and they vote for whomever they want to vote for, like when it has its sovereignty, when it says... Even if we screw up later on, like, can we just please vote and have our government and just not have military coups and try to build a country ourselves? And what hasn't happened really in, in the past too much when you have a country that sort of takes its own path, but you don't have major external factors like, will other countries give you an embargo, right? What we saw in Cuba, obviously, for many years, what we're seeing in Venezuela as well, right? So it's kind of like, even if we're choosing someone or a party and then later on we decide that, you know what, that wasn't a good choice, but at least it was our choice and maybe hopefully even no one threatened us with sanctions because we did that. But you know, sanctions can always happen, so maybe I've spoken too early. Hopefully not, hopefully not. You know, I really like this quote. I was listening to an interview with Evo and he was saying, uh, we did it with votes we didn't do it with bullets like we the party we got back to power how we wanted to get back to power and we didn't resort to what the right has resorted to so once again in a country which history is marked just stained with foreign interventions foreign powers dictating how the country should be who should be in power who should not be in power and should not really have too much this is such a big deal, and I see it as a victory. I'm very hopeful for it. I really hope that Bolivia does well, so to speak, and continues on its path of development, because this is where it has been for some time. And the third country I want to say big, holy shit, congrats, is Belarus. What happened in Belarus were massive protests. They started in a country uh, in Minsk, the capital, um, in the summer, so now it's going to be more than half a year, approximately half a year of protests, big protests every Sunday. We saw hundreds of thousands of people on the streets of Minsk. I believe they had smaller protests around the country. And why people were protesting, it's because, well, they've had their president, or the dictator, Lukashenko, for uh, 26 years now? That's a very long time. That's a very long time for anyone to be doing anything, really. Jesus. So he got to power in 1994. As many autocrats, or many future autocrats, um, he got into power democratically. He was elected, but then two years later he had a referendum. And one of the points of the referendum was to extend the presidential term from five to seven years. So people approved that. And then, yeah, he stayed in power longer and then sort of kept on changing things and just kept on running for president and then controlling other things within the state to ensure that that happens. So in short, after 26 years, people had enough. 
what significantly contributed to that was the fact that they had elections where Lukashenko won, and that was very much contested. You kind of have a traditional path that uh, authoritarians take, which is you stifle opposition, you put opposition leaders in jail, uh, persecute people. So, so kind of the usual, really, not even that surprising, but at the same time, horrifying, horrifying, of course. We saw opposition leaders detained, uh, forced into exile. We have uh, Svetlana Tikhanovskaya, the, I guess we can call her the opposition leader, really. She uh, went into exile in Lithuania. Then you have Maria Kolesnikova, who the regime tried to deport to Ukraine, but then she maybe heard the story, it's rather crazy. She actually torn her passport so that the officials couldn't actually like bring her to Ukraine. And now she's detained, she's in prison now. So it's rather bad, like it's rather bad. But then you can ask, so why am I presenting this as one of the good things that happened in 2020? And I think it is definitely good because it finally started. The protests finally erupted. And you might think, and it's kinda, it kind of goes two ways, right? Because the regime, the oppression, um, the silencing of the position has been happening for so long that you, on one hand, might not expect it to happen. But on the other hand, yeah, it's been going on for so long that it had to explode one day. Not to say that there was no opposition, no protest before, but this is a different level. This is a different scale. And it's really impressive. You see young people, older people. You see people who you might consider to be from the very base of Lukashenko's supporters, like you know factory workers and older people. And like no, they're like they're marching on the streets. They're a part of the movement. I have to say, I felt so ignorant. I was watching this piece of news about the protests, and they were interviewing some people. And there was this elderly lady, and I thought, ah, you know, she's a bit older. Uh, probably supports Lukashenko because, you know, she's been indoctrinated, like it's not really her fault, like it would make sense, it's okay. And she said, and I think she was a teacher or something, and she said, enough, enough of this disrespect. I don't want this for my children. I don't want this for my grandchildren. This has to stop. And that was so moving because you see, once again, people of different demographics, uh, the role of women is rather big in these protests and yeah, and that, that's powerful. That's very beautiful to see. And uh, obviously it's appalling how the government has been treating the protesters. You see them being detained, put into vans, torture is happening. You know, everything's being documented these days. Like it's, there's no secret. And I, I don't think anyone should be surprised that, hey, an authoritarian regime is not falling easily, right? And there's resistance. And especially if the military like certain state forces, are on the authoritarian side, that's a big deal. And if that doesn't change, the likelihood of a regime falling is rather small, really. So I do hope that this year we see that uh, not only critical mass in, in the protests themselves, because I would say, yeah, that's like they reach critical mass, but also the people in special forces, in state forces, whatever, military, whatever, you know, troops Lukashenko is using, for them to say, oh wait, it's our country and what the hell, we're engaging this horrible violence, where is this going, that has to stop. So I really do hope we see that this year, you know, the sooner the better. And really, I cannot imagine how hard it is, how horrifying it is to stand up against an authoritarian regime when you go to the protest, you know, that yes, I can be arrested. I might get hurt. My loved ones might get hurt. I might get tortured in a state prison. This is insane, right? Like, the, the actual consequences. Oof. 
so how much bravery in the end is needed and is generated in Belarus right now? Wow. So thank you for this hope. Thank you for this inspiration. And this is why I'm choosing to talk about it as one of the good things that happened in 2020. As my conclusion, I want to get back to the very beginning and to talk about Argentina very briefly. So I was telling you how the very title, how the very name of this podcast is The Exploding Head, because there are all these things that, you know, they bother me and probably most of us, and it feels sometimes like your head is about to explode. And I think it's so easy to, let's say, look at Argentina and you say, well, you know, abortion got legalized in Argentina, there were some protests, and finally, you know, the, the bill was passed. And, you know, it, and it's sort of okay to present it like that. But then if you go a bit more deeply, how fucking insane is that? Like, this is the 21st century. And women still have to march and say, can I please have the right to my own body? Can the, please the government not mandate what I can do in these very delicate situations that no one wants to be in, you know, in the first place? Like, how fucking crazy is that? In 2020, in 2021, like, what the hell? This is what I mean when I say the exploding head. Like, it's not just politics. It's actual life. And I highly recommend you watch a video of the very moment when it was announced to a big crowd of people, mostly women, yes, protesters, on the big screen that the, you know, the bill was passed, action, and, and abortion, you know, got, got legalized. And the emotion you see, you know, it's not like as, you know, some misogynist would say, oh, this crowd of, you know, angry women, you look at them and you, and you see how they react, very rightfully so, it's just this joy and tears and, I guess, hope and relief and maybe this, like, end of this horrible era where some thousands of women would, you know, seek abortion, like, outside of Argentina or get it illegally, like, oh my god, and you see that emotion, and it's so clear how it's so much more than boring politics. And it's so human, and it's really beautiful. And I think we had many moments like that for various reasons. Big reasons, less significant reasons in 2020. And we should talk about it, we should celebrate it, and we should not only hope, but take action to see more moments like that in 2021. Thank you so much for listening, and now we can continue in our very new and very different from 2020, right? 2021. <laughs>